I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, lordsofpain.net. Wherever you may be listening, Doc says, Doc says... Uh. This is just what the doc ordered I'm saying welcome They sick of the other shows Chad here to help them The author of the mania era Is bringing terror on L.O.P. radio This is to prepare for the knowledge That he about to showcase Like a bar that you lift His opinions hold weight He wrote a few books And he's working on another for y'all This a five-star podcast Chad, let's get it on Author of the Wrestlemania era The book of sports entertainment And of the doctor's orders On lordsofpain.net Doc says. Hello and welcome to the Doc Says on LOP Radio. I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, author of the WrestleMania era book series and of the Doctor's Orders on LordsOfPain.net. Wherever you may be listening, thank you for making me a part of your day. Years ago, when I first got into column writing, I would always get these ideas, big grand in scope historical rankings projects and things that allowed me to dive deep into history. That's partly where the idea to write the WrestleMania era book series came from, looking at the grandiosity of the greatest wrestler of all time discussion and of the greatest matches of all time discussion. And with the columns not really being something that I'm very active in anymore, This podcast is the main way that I'm afforded the opportunity to dive deep into historical topics, and I'm presented with a unique opportunity right now, and that's, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, we're mere months away from the end of this decade. It's a decade that's meant a lot to me personally. I opened my practice at the very beginning of this decade. January 4th was the first day that its doors were open. Uh, My kids were born this decade. So, you know, I celebrated 10 years of marriage this decade, just actually, just recently. So, I mean, there's been a lot that has happened in this decade for me personally that has shaped who I am moving forward into the next phase of my life. And wrestling obviously plays a big part in my world. And any decade that goes by in pro wrestling, we always look back on it and we judge it against its peers. We judge it against eras that produced golden ages, like the late 80s and the early 90s. We judge the early 2000s against the latter part of the 2000s, the entirety of which shapes the overarching opinion of that decade. Now we sit at the end of a very unique decade in pro wrestling. A lot has changed from the beginning to the end, which is fascinating, utterly fascinating when you consider where we were in 2010 versus where we are now. So what I intend to do across the course of the next several months is year by year go back and review this decade. I'm going to be looking specifically at WWE and a lot of it, but I will be moving into other topics as we go along. Um, I'm kind of doing my own decade by decade thing with New Japan, so this is mainly going to be a WWE retrospective much like people will be doing soon, I'm sure, in column and podcast form for the National Basketball Association, for college football. Decades, the end of them, give us the chance to reflect. So we're going to start with 2010, obviously. And one of the biggest topics that shaped 2010 as a year in WWE lore 
was undoubtedly the fact that so many legendary figures that were active on the roster for much of the 2000s stopped being active members of the roster in 2010. We saw the retirement at WrestleMania of Shawn Michaels. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. We saw The Undertaker begin his part-time status, Triple H, the same, where these guys essentially became wrestlers who showed up for very brief periods at other times of the year, but began their descent into part-timer territory, specifically at WrestleMania time. We also saw Batista retire right after WrestleMania. By the time the summer months had rolled around, Dave Batista, who had such a dominant run from 2005's WrestleMania season up until that particular WrestleMania season for WrestleMania 26 in Phoenix, two months later, Dave Batista is gone not to return again until January four years later. We saw Chris Jericho, by the end of the year, bow out. We saw a lot of turnover at the very top of WWE, leaving the likes of John Cena and the likes of Randy Orton to carry a load that they had shared for a very long time. Randy Orton and John Cena were never in a position in the back end of the 2000s to have to truly carry the company, not in the traditional sense, because flanking them were the likes of Jericho and Michaels and Taker and Triple H, all of which rank in the top 15 stars of the WrestleMania era. So they were very well supported during that decade when they were getting to the top. 2010, they're virtually left all alone. And it's an unfamiliar role. And it's a role that I think we most look back on and say they didn't handle it very well. Or WWE didn't handle it particularly well. And it was unfortunate, that set of circumstances. You would ideally, and it's interesting to me that this doesn't happen, but ideally, you're, you're the company. You're the biggest wrestling company in the world. Everybody on planet Earth who has taken five minutes to try to understand how the ins and outs of the business side of your product works would vouch for the fact that Vince McMahon is the be-all, end-all. He is the guy who, who controls every little teeny tiny movement of the creative product. I say controls because if you present him with a minor detail, he might rewrite it five minutes before the show starts. That's become the reputation of Vince McMahon this decade, which is going to be a dominant theme, I would suspect. I don't have any sort of set list of the things I'm hoping to discuss. I'm kind of hoping this thing just sort of organically evolves across the years that we discuss in this podcast series. But Vince McMahon has acquired a very negative reputation for changing everything on the fly and being somewhat Tasmanian devil-like in his creative mindset. I bring it up because I find it odd. I think if you are a, a promotion who's run by one man, and that one man has an embarrassment of riches of legendary talent that he could utilize, and he realizes very obviously that these, these men are aging, and they're aging quickly, and the, the obvious end of their runs at the peak of their powers is upon us. 
I would think that it would be very sensical to say, all right, we're going to slowly phase out Shawn Michaels. We're going to slowly phase out The Undertaker, Triple H, Jericho, Batista. You know when their contracts end. You know how much they have in the tank. You watch them all the time. You should know, okay, we need to start planning for the future. But WWE, at the turn of this decade, ran into a problem that confronted them very loudly and fast after WrestleMania 26, and certainly by the end of the year once Jericho 2 was onto his latest multi-year hiatus, WWE suddenly found themselves with a lack of star power. They had nothing but it spread across multiple brands. Edge was nearly finished with his career as well, mind you. He was an active full-time star throughout 2010, but he was winding down as well. I mean, again, not to be repetitive here, but think of the names that we're talking about. We're talking about the guy who came to define WrestleMania as the unquestioned match of the night candidate every single time out. Shawn Michaels, like Michael Jordan in pro basketball, had a mindset when he walked into the building for WrestleMania that he was going to steal the show or be the show or both, and you had to follow him or try to keep up with him, and that resonated across the entire card. That resonated across the entire card because people didn't want to have the, sto- the, the show stolen from them. If you weren't on the opposite end of the ring with Michaels, then you wanted to try to live up to his standard. And if you were sharing the ring with Michaels, then you had to rise to the occasion. And that mattered on that stage. And it mattered in terms of what WrestleMania was able to become. A sustainable entity that eventually ranked sixth in all sport and entertainment conglomerates, including the World Cup, the World Series, the NBA playoffs, etc., the sixth in the world in terms of big events and money-making. That's what WrestleMania became in the latter part of the 2000s, and that's what WrestleMania sustained and grew in the 2010s, or whatever we want to call them. Shawn Michaels, big part of that. Undertaker and the streak, big part of that. Triple H, big part of that. Chris Jericho, not as big of a part of that, but a guy who certainly had his moments. Edge, a big part of that. Batista, unquestionably a big part of that, especially in three of the latter part of the decade's WrestleManias, getting up to 2010s in which he wrestled and defended the WWE Championship. So when you have a mass exodus of talents of that caliber all within the span of one year, then what are you going to do to fill the gaps? What are you going to do? You're going to rush some guys to the top. Sheamus, 2009, technically toward the end of it, is when Sheamus rose to the forefront, but it was his title reign that brought us into 2010. Sheamus was then expected to carry a big part of that load throughout 2010 when several guys went on to part-time duty and the like slash retired. You also had the Nexus, and the Nexus was one of the other big stories of the year because between the Nexus, between the rise of Sheamus and the rise toward the end of 2010 of of Alberto Del Rio, suddenly you have a lot of different talents, and of course we haven't even yet talked about The Miz, 
who by the end of 2010 was WWE champion and barreling towards his WrestleMania match with John Cena in 2011. The Nexus was the greatest casualty, perhaps, of a company that wasn't ready to go from this embarrassment of legendary riches to having to very quickly and creatively produce television that would get guys hot fast. WWE has at times proven capable of being able to ignite somebody very fast, but having a plan has not been their motivation, uh, has not been their modus operandi this decade. 2010 is when such a phenomenon became evident. We saw traces of it in the back end of the 2000s, but for the most part, the OVW class of 2002, from Cena to Lesnar to Orton to Batista, they were the shining examples along with the rise from the mid-card of Edge. They were the shining examples of how WWE could come up with a plan and execute that plan very well to create the platform for stars of that caliber to launch themselves into the history books. 2010, they needed to be able to do that again, and they needed to do it quickly, but creative missteps along the way came to define that year, with the nexus being at the tip of, of the spear there, so to speak. Wade Barrett, they all come off of this reality show, NXT, believe it or not, and think of all that NXT would come to mean to pro wrestling as the decade advanced. NXT starts out as this joke of a reality show in which Daniel Bryan is featured, in which Wade Barrett is featured, Heath Slater, who's still around today, is featured, Justin Gabriel, and a few others. Wade Barrett clearly is the guy who has the most natural ability to engage you with a microphone. So when that group gets beyond joke status, comes up, debuts on Raw, and tears everything to bits, then you're immediately thinking to yourself, okay, there's something here, and there clearly was something there. But the creative misstep, and you don't realize these things in the moment. That's why it's nice to be able to reflect back on them well after the fact. I mean, this is your, this is nearly something that was 10 years ago, believe it or not. But the big creative misstep there was SummerSlam. SummerSlam 2010 builds this match where the Nexus is going to face seven representatives of WWE's brand, and the Nexus, this invading force, this virus, if you will, this embodiment of what Vince McMahon claimed the NWO to be when he brought them back in 2002, a a lethal dose of poison, if you will, the Nexus injects their poison, they run roughshod, It's actually quite engaging. It's glorious. It's critically acclaimed. Everybody's on board. Wade Barrett looks like the savior. Even it, it was it was even able to withstand the aftermath of losing Daniel Bryan immediately to the choking incident with Justin Roberts and his tie. Daniel Bryan gets quote unquote fired or actually fired or whatever the heck it was put into obscurity long enough for the media firestorm to blow over, and then. Here's Wade Barrett, the opportunity for him at SummerSlam, the second biggest pay-per-view of the year by that point because it's the only one of the big four that we can't connect directly to the success of WrestleMania as, uh, as something of an incubator to sustain its success. So SummerSlam's this big show now. 
And here's the nexus in the main event with the names with names like Edge, Jericho, Bret Hart, John Cena, etc. involved in it. And John Cena basically supermans his way through the end of that match and kills the nexus dead in its tracks. And it's one of those stories that shaped the decade in many ways because John Cena's reputation was always before that. It was more so that John Cena was a guy who fans really weren't connecting with his babyface character. The narrative begins to shift in WWE when he starts being put in a position where they need to put over new stars. And stories start trickling down that John Cena actively campaigned to win the match. And that, at the very least, John Cena did not listen to the advice of veterans like Edge and Chris Jericho, who implored him, you need to lose this match. This angle is over if you don't lose this match. And he did not back down. He wanted to win And he did win. And as a result, the nexus and the angle and the reputation that John Cena would maintain for several years later was quite frankly that, you know, it was a bust. It was John Cena failing to put someone over. It was the, the beginning, really, of the narrative of John Cena not being capable of elevating somebody by defeating them. A lot of guys, some of the greats of all time, most of the greats of all time, were regularly able to win and still put someone over in victory. And quite frankly, John Cena has always struggled with that. Never was that more apparent, and this might be the most classic example of it, than when he essentially pulled his Superman act on the Nexus. And the Nexus was never the same. So then, The Miz steps up to the plate as the next man up. The Nexus is pretty much killed dead at at SummerSlam 2010, though it was a slow death. It was a slow death that devolved into uh, numerous missteps moving forward. But, you know, it just never recovered from the big misstep from the beginning. Wade Barrett and John Cena certainly continued to feud, and they did leave enough there to where you thought that maybe Wade Barrett could have eventually become a star, but instead he ended up as a member of the elusive lost generations of main event talent. WWE failing to pull the trigger when it was the right time. Certain stars like Cena failing to elevate the likes of Wade Barrett and his contemporaries when it was most opportune. And as a result, you've got a next man up scenario with The Miz, who himself had been virtually squashed like a bug by John Cena one year prior in the spring of 2009. The Miz wins Money in the Bank. Money in the Bank, in in and of itself, takes on a different role because it becomes its own pay-per-view in 2010 after being confined to the WrestleMania stage for its first six outings. The proliferation of the Money in the Bank concept was then sort of, that was the, 2010 became its platform for growth in terms of the number of them that take place, in terms of separating the concept into its own feature pay-per-view, like a Royal Rumble or like a Survivor Series, which was attached to its elimination tag team match. But in terms of quality, maybe not so much. Over-saturation of the Money in the Bank stunt brawl ladder match market 
though it certainly can be said that the SmackDown version that year that crowned the Money in the Bank title holder of Kane very briefly so that he could defeat so that he could defeat Rey Mysterio on the same night was probably one of the top 5 versions of the stunt brawl ladder match not involving the TLC genre era guys of all time that was an incredible incredible Money in the Bank ladder match but steering back to the point the Miz wins the raw version and the Miz by the time we get beyond Survivor Series, is WWE Champion. So you're elevating The Miz very quickly. You're elevating the Nexus very quickly. It doesn't really end up working out very well. The Miz has a nice, respectable run that includes what I'd like to spotlight right now as the mid-card match of the year, opposite Daniel Bryan at Night of Champions for the United States title. But The Miz himself would struggle to get a foothold in the main event scene. He would certainly have success in the paper sort that is celebrated nevertheless. Anyone who main events a WrestleMania goes down in the history books as having done something that everybody in the industry wants to do every year. The Miz got to do that as a result of the work he put in in 2010. And in in isolation, it's funny. Because The Miz ended up doing really well with his opportunity. As a character, he built on the momentum that he was able to gain through 2009. He was able to withstand the relationship that he established with John Cena in that spring that year. He was able to advance his cause further and further, really without ever actually having a big featured spotlight match in the main event prior to the Money in the Bank concept and contract bringing him to that level. But in the mid-card, he was continually showcasing his abilities with a microphone in hand, regularly stealing the show verbally, if not physically. By the time he got to this match with Daniel Bryan at Night of Champions, many things had gone right for his character, despite all that had gone wrong. He had established a feud with Daniel Bryan in their pro versus rookie relationship on the joke that was the NXT reality show. Everyone thought it was a joke and it was intended as such that the great, great wrestler from the independent scene, Daniel Bryan, would be be paired with The Miz, by no means known for his in-ring ability whatsoever, as a, in a rookie pro relationship. And the fact of the matter is, is that those two as had been proven numerous times throughout the decade beyond that, they had this natural antagonist-protagonist sort of vibe going for them that worked very well and that connected with a lot of people. So what we ended up with was a recipe for success that by the time we hit Night of Champions in September 2010, it was ripe for those two guys having the opportunity to prove themselves in a big-time spotlight match Not a featured-length match. It's a mid-card match of the highest order. It's about 13, 14 minutes in length. But it tells a great story of Daniel Bryan fighting from the knees up, supposedly, when in actuality he was one of the best submission wrestlers on planet Earth who was making a very nice transition into the WWE stylistically, finding a way to, in limited time put his skills on display in a much more spotty kind of way while still maintaining a great deal 
of submission focus and psychology. Daniel Bryan's ability to transition into WWE proper in 2010 was one of the forgotten stories, and it was a big foundation builder for the rest of his career. But at no point was he featured in the way that The Miz was regularly featured throughout the year on TV. So he's largely excluded from the aforementioned discussion about WWE trying to build new headlining stars in a hurry. But still, it warrants a lot of praise, Daniel Bryan making the transition as well as he did. So the match ends up turning out very, very well. It spawns a run by Daniel Bryan that includes other excellent mid-card matches that very well could have, and I think certainly in the minds of many, did win the mid-card match of the year award that year. One against Dolph Ziggler in an IC champion versus U.S. champion match at bragging rights roughly one month after he won the title from The Miz. Certainly the match, the triple threat falls count anywhere submission match that involved, or submissions count anywhere match, I should say, involving John Morrison and The Miz. That was a tremendous performance too. So Daniel Bryan was really looking back on it, one of the bright spots of 2010, and he was three years away from an incredible peak. You know, it's it's kind of funny to me now that you look at it in isolation, and The Miz seemed like he had a, a heck of a run. Like, I mean, I was really high on The Miz in 2010. Coming out of that year, I felt great about his future. I felt very impressed with what he'd done in the present. I felt like what I had seen was enough from him in the ring in the last third of the year to feel confident that as he headed into what seemed like a really big spotlight series of matches from Rumble to WrestleMania, so WrestleMania season for the following year, that he was going to come into his own and establish himself in a way that we had seen the likes of Batista, Orton, Cena, and others do in the previous decade. I thought The Miz was positioned for that. I wasn't expecting what we eventually got from Daniel Bryan. I don't know that anyone realistically could have, but he certainly had established himself as one to watch. I personally felt that Sheamus did a really nice job in 2010 as well. I was very, very much a big fan of the Celtic Warrior. Still am today because of the kind of work he did that year. I thought as a promo, he did just fine. I thought as a wrestler, he brought to the table some very unique qualities at that point in time, the, the, the sort of the, the big, rough brawler who could do a lot of signature moves too, it, it seemed very appropriate for WWE at that point in time that someone like Sheamus would rise to the forefront. Big, different kind of look, but great look, the kind of thing that brought him a lot of attention naturally. And then he backed up in the ring with what he could do, and at times on the mic with what he was capable of saying, I thought he did very well. So it was interesting because you look back on it in isolation, and I felt very confident moving into the decade that WWE had a pretty good handle on where things were at and what they needed to do. So in in, in looking at it in hindsight, you look at what happened with the Nexus, what eventually happened with The Miz, where he peaks in 2011, but then basically drops off the map for five freaking years. It was really unreal. I mean, just the how how big of a star he became 
and then how much he dropped off the map. But we'll talk about more more about him next next time. Um, Alberto Del Rio's coming into the next year, doing pretty well. There was there was a lot to like if you looked at it in isolation. It's only in hindsight that I think we look back on it and see, wow, most of what they hoped would happen didn't happen, and it was largely because they didn't have a plan long-term to execute. There are some other themes that will be brought up roughly when we get to 2013, 2014, and you see the development of the guys from the, the fledgling NXT developmental brand, seeing the likes of Rollins, Reigns, Ambrose, and Wyatt rise to the forefront and basically just snatch the spots away from many of the stars that had been looking to dominate the decade as of 2010-2011. So thematically, I thought that really was what came to define the year, is WWE losing a lot of top-level, all-time great talent and not necessarily all that well executing in the big picture the replacements who would headline in their stead. Some of them worked out okay. Some of them in the moment worked out better. And in the long run, though, the likes of Wade Barrett, the likes of The Miz, Sheamus, Dolph Ziggler, Alberto Del Rio seemed like replacement players that would then need to be uh, pushed aside in favor of headliners with a bit more metal that inspired in WWE a bit more confidence. But even that would become a narrative later in the decade that would be put into question by the rise of the part-timer. So in terms of matches, as mentioned in association with the, the column that I posted about uh, 2010's Best Of, um, which, you know, if it doesn't come out right after you hear this podcast, is coming soon. Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker and the career versus streak match at WrestleMania 26 stands out to me as really the only all-time great level candidate from the pack. It was this, a gigantic gap, and everything else. Most years in WWE history have more than one candidate. They, they truly do. I think that throughout most of the WrestleMania era, you've usually seen multiple matches in the discussion. Even if there is a clear runaway match of the year winner, what comes after it is not too far off of that quality. But in this case, Shawn Michaels and Undertaker's match at WrestleMania 26 was far and away the greatest match that 2010 produced from WWE. And it was tremendous, no question about it. Shawn Michaels' career coming to an end, the streak within the streak, building to that next highest level, crossing over from a few times to an expectation. Shawn Michaels and Undertaker was great, and it should be considered all-time great. It's probably one of the top 25 matches standalone of all time, and if you combine it with the rivalry that the two of them established at WrestleMania and then in the late 90s, it makes up one of the top, very, very, very top percentile rivalries in the history of the game. Other things that happened that year, matches and moments that happened that year that I think deserve some special attention. Um, certainly credit, where credit is due, to Rey Mysterio. Rey Mysterio had one of the last really good years of his career that year. He opened up the year challenging for the World Heavyweight Championship against The Undertaker at the Royal Rumble. 
I love that match. It's one of my favorite WrestleMania undercard matches of all time. It's very unique because of the Undertaker skill set up against Rey Mysterio's. The size difference is fantastic, but I thought they they put together something that was perfectly judged. And I look back on that match fondly, perhaps more fondly than many do. I I thought it was a really great thing when he later in the year was able to go on that run, the brief run that included the match with Jack Swagger at Money in the Bank right before losing the title, interestingly enough. Uh, a great match between those two. Jack Swagger was another guy who was a victim. He was obviously someone I didn't really talk much about because um, pretty much it was, here's Jack Swagger on Raw talking about, I'm going to win Money in the Bank. Here's Jack Swagger winning Money in the Bank at WrestleMania. Jack Swagger cashing in the following week on SmackDown. And Jack Swagger holding the title for a brief run that most never considered memorable, but that my wife and I quite enjoyed. She still, to this day, mentions the the Jack Swagger Screaming Eagle, which she nicknamed the Sweagle. I actually texted that to Jack Swagger, recalling his conversation that I actually very much enjoyed with Edge and Christian on their podcast earlier in the year after his first Bellator fight and victory. And uh, and we had a, a nice little exchange there. Very, very nice, because I've always been a fan of Jack Swagger based on his work from late 2008 through 2009, and particularly as world champion. I thought in terms of his character work, he had earned the right to stay in the game and really have an opportunity to shine but WWE didn't really give him much of a follow-up to his World Heavyweight Championship run. So he was like a comet. He came in, he peaked, and he was gone from relevance at that level of the WWE hierarchy in the blink of an eye and the snap of your fingers. But it was memorable enough that I thought it worth mentioning. A couple of matches that flew under the radar. Uh, big time congratulations to the Dolph Ziggler and Daniel Bryan match at Bragging Rights that I mentioned a few minutes ago. It showed you everything that Dolph Ziggler could be, and it might very well be the best WWE match of his career, quite frankly. He would go on to have several other ones, but that one, to me, was the one where he took that next step that launched him into the upper echelon in 2011 with the opportunity to do what he accomplished in the few years that followed. Huge fan of John Morrison back then. He's a guy who I'd like to put the spotlight on because, interestingly enough, as good as he was, I thought 2010 was going to be such a bigger year for him. I thought that he came into the year looking like he was going to be something huge, and it didn't work out. It just did not pan out for him for whatever reason. And, um, you know, he was one of those guys who looked like he could step into the void left by a lot of the stars who exited stage left and into part-time roles of retirement that year. But he just didn't. And then at the end of the year, he has a couple of matches with Sheamus, one at Survivor Series. I think he has another that's the King of the Ring final um, on Raw. And then he has actually another, a ladder match, that earned him a title shot that would manifest as a a championship opportunity for him on Raw in, in very early 2011. So... Obviously missing from the discussion today is CM Punk. CM Punk was somebody who you really kind of thought, wow, this is a guy who, after the great summer of Punk in 2009, should have had a huge 2010 to fill that void 
after that mass exodus of headlining all-time level talent, but they didn't give him the ball at all that year. He had some solid mid-card work that he did. He continued his mastery of the microphone, but a big missed opportunity for CM Punk not to be given the chance to shine to the fullest extent possible. But of course, all that led into the biggest talking point of 2011, which was his rise and the shift in eras accordingly. So a lot of 2010 set the stage for 2011 and the rest of the decade. Um, All sorts of interesting talking points, I think, that are going to come out of this series. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm really going to try not to overstay my welcome with these. I'm going to submit some bullet points, talk about a few things in depth, and then uh, let the discussion transition from here over to social media. Hit me up at the Doc LOP on Twitter. You can leave feedback in the appropriate thread on LOP for this podcast. And in the meantime, until I meet you again, check out the rest of the LOP radio lineup. We've got a lot of good shows. The, uh, the little recording upcoming will let you know the lineup. And I will look forward to the discussion that stems from this podcast and hope you check out next week's. Thank you again for joining me. This is just what the doc ordered. I'm saying welcome. They sick of the other shows. Chad here to help them. The author of the mania era is bringing terror on LOP radio. This is the prepare for the knowledge that he about to showcase. Like a bar that you lift, his opinions hold weight. He wrote a few books and he's working on another for y'all. This is a five-star podcast. Chad, let's get it on. Author of the WrestleMania 